This is Eve Lazarus, and you are listening to Cold Case Canada, The Search for Brenda Byman. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. This podcast is based on a story from my book, Cold Case BC, the stories behind the province's most intriguing murder and missing persons cases. In 2019, Misty Agnew contacted me through my Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada. Misty wanted to know how she could go about adding her aunt, Brenda Byman, to the site. Brenda disappeared on May 7, 1961, outside Invermere, in British Columbia's East Kootenays. Despite one of the biggest searches in the province's history, no trace of the 12-year-old has ever been found. I read a few newspaper articles from over the years, talked to Brenda's sisters, and wrote up a short post on the anniversary of her disappearance. I included some photos provided by her family. According to the newspaper reports and to her sisters, Brenda had been staying with her grandmother in Wilma, a small community outside of Invermere. She was last seen in the company of four teenagers, a 15-year-old girl and three boys. The subtext of all of these stories was that these teens knew more than they were saying and were somehow responsible for Brenda's disappearance. What took me completely by surprise was the animosity generated by this post about an event that had occurred over six decades ago. One person wrote telling me to stop spreading fake news. I'd quoted from stories in the Globe and Mail and the National Post. Another reader sent me a letter to the editor from a local paper. It was written by the brother of one of the boys who had been 13 at the time of Brenda's disappearance and has since passed away. My short social media post stirred up old arguments, rumours and even hatred. I realised that there was a lot more to this tragic event. This was a story about a town divided. Invermere is a town in the Columbia Valley, not far from the Alberta border, roughly between Golden to the north and Cranbrook to the south. Invermere is a hub for the immediate area and is surrounded by much smaller communities, such as Wilma, Dry Gulch, Windermere and Canal Flats. Brenda's father, Ingvar Byman, was a carpenter with Kootenay National Park. He built and sold houses, and his family of seven moved around the area. Before settling in Dry Gulch, they'd lived in Wilma, a working-class community that was a 16-kilometre drive away along Highway 93. In 2006, Wilma had a population of 237 people, and that number was much smaller in 1961. In other words, 
everybody really did know everybody, and the kids all attended elementary school in a one-room school. As I dug deeper into this story, I realised my Facebook critics were right. A lot of wrong information was written when the story first broke, and it's been perpetuated over the years. Only one side of the story was told, and as I soon found out, Brenda and the Byman family weren't the only victims from that day. The story that's been repeated for the past 60-plus years is that Brenda was visiting her maternal grandmother in Wilma that weekend when Vivian Barrett invited her over to play cards. Later, 15-year-old Vivian called Brenda's grandmother to ask if Brenda could sleep over. The next day, the two girls, joined by three boys, set off on a five-kilometre hike to Enid Lake. On the way back, Vivian and her boyfriend, 15-year-old Ed Carson, left for home. Brenda stayed with Elwood Godlian, 13, and Ed's older brother, 17-year-old John Carson. Then realising she'd be late to meet her parents at her grandmother's house, she headed home herself. The boys yelled at her that she was going the wrong way. She either didn't hear them or ignored them, because the last they saw of her was her purple parka and bright yellow scarf disappearing from view. A few minutes later, they heard voices and the slamming of a car door up along the road where she was walking. What actually happened, says Connie Barrett, Vivian's younger sister, was that Connie invited Brenda over. Connie, who was 11 at the time and not mentioned in any of the newspaper reports, was friends with Brenda. In fact, they'd known each other all their lives. They went to each other's birthday parties and had attended the same one-room school. I just wondered if you could tell me your story. Well, I wasn't with them when they went up to the lake, but Brenda did stay overnight with me. Was it you that went down to the grandmother to ask if she could come over? No, that was all planned at school, and her parents knew she was going to come and stay with me. And the grandmother lived just below us. So she was just coming for a sleepover with you? Yes. Had Brenda stayed over at your house before this? No, that was the first time. Can you tell me about the weekend? So she came over roughly what time on the Saturday? Yeah, she came over that afternoon. Who was there at the house? My parents and my sister and my brother and me. And what did you guys do? Well, in the evening, I don't remember who all came to the house, but we usually played cards, Crazy Eights or the Old Maid. Friends would come over and we'd sit at the table and play cards. So pretty normal night. Yeah. How come you didn't go on the picnic? Because my dad was going up to, well, actually Brenda's aunt's place in Invermere to work on her cupboards because he was building her new cupboards. And she has two daughters, and I decided to go and play with them. And Brenda didn't want to come with me, so she decided to go with my sister and the boys for a walk up to the lake, and I didn't want to go. I can tell you she had a yellow kind of silk model scarf on. She had a purple coat on. I remember that just as plain as day. Tell me about Brenda. Were you close friends? Well, yeah, we were in the same class. So you'd known her all your life? Yeah. What was she like? She was a pleasant girl. We got along fine. Was she shy? She was, to a certain extent, but not that shy. 
she acted just like the rest of us. She was just a normal 12-year-old girl. Were you ever questioned by police? Yes, I was, until one of the ladies in the house seen that they had me in the car, and she came out and said, you cannot question her without her parents here or somebody with her. How soon after she went missing was that? was Sunday afternoon. And Vivian, was she questioned? Oh, yes. God, she had two investigators here a few years ago from Edmonton go question her on her farm. Brenda was five foot four and had long reddish blonde hair, blue-gray eyes, and freckles across her nose. When she failed to return home, police were called. By that evening, a search was underway and headed into rugged country. They knew that Brenda was afraid of the dark, and aside from her jacket, wearing only light shoes, grey pants and a scarf, the searchers lit a huge bonfire to keep warm and in the hopes that it would draw Brenda to them. That night, the temperature dropped to almost freezing. Small planes and a helicopter joined the search the next day. Truckers and guides and about 400 miners and sawmillers from Invermere and surrounding communities left their jobs so that they could help with the search. Over the next few days, police and their dogs were joined by searchers from all over the region. By that Tuesday, two days after Brenda had gone missing, they'd thoroughly swept the area 16 kilometres west of Invermere and the lowland in the valley near the Purcell Mountains. Willie Van Bilch, one of the searchers, told a reporter, had anyone dropped even a jackknife, they would have found it. Searchers, some working on as little as two hours of sleep, pushed on through sticky mud, heavy rain and biting winds while planes were grounded because of the storm. Divers searched Enid Lake and police dragged the Columbia River. On Thursday, exhausted searchers turned out again at 7am, stopping only to change into dry clothes and eat the lunch prepared by volunteers. Hopes were briefly raised when searchers found a shoe that fitted the description of those that Brenda was wearing, but it turned out not to be hers. Searchers checked every lead, including reports of a fresh grave that turned out to be where a local farmer had buried his dog. They found scarves and shoes, hunting knives and combs, but nothing that had belonged to Brenda. Then, just over two weeks after Brenda went missing, they came across a skull. The skull turned out to belong to Konstantin Kostoleski, a 57-year-old Russian engineer who'd left a note in 1931 saying that he was going off to die in the mountains. Despite there having been a search at the time, no trace of him had ever been found. By the time the three-person RCMP detachment and Invermere called off the search at day 16, the ranks had already thinned as miners and lumber workers gave up hope of finding Brenda still alive and returned to their jobs. Some time after Brenda went missing, Connie says Brenda's Aunt Mary came to their house. We burnt sawdust. We had a sawdust furnace in our house. Her aunt came and dug with a stick through the sawdust to see if she could find her body. And my mum and her were best friends. They weren't after that. And then they went to John's parents' place and looked in their deep freeze. Yeah kind of sickening. That's why we all wished it would be solved. 
how did everything get so wrong? I don't know. Everybody's got a different story. I just wish that she was found or her body was found or whatever. Put an end to all this. If you're like me and enjoy tales from the darker side of history, then get yourself on a forbidden Vancouver walking tour. Your guide will share tales of mobsters, riots, corruption, bootlegging, hidden treasure and unsolved murder as you explore Vancouver's most interesting nooks. From the back streets and alleyways of Victorian Gastown to the forested trails of Stanley Park. Forbidden Vancouver's had over 1,500 five-star reviews on TripAdvisor and are winners of the prestigious City of Vancouver Heritage Medal of Honour. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% on your booking using the code COLDCASE. John Carson was in grade six when his mother married Henry Cooper and the family moved to Wilma. He went to Invermere Elementary, then David Thompson Secondary School. On the Sunday of that May weekend in 1961, John says he, Ed and Elwood were at his house when Vivian and Brenda dropped by and asked the boys if they wanted to walk with them to Enid Lake. John remembers the day as cold but partly sunny. They walked through Barber's Farm to get to the lake, and when they got to Poplar Flats, Vivian and Ed went on ahead, while Brenda, John and Elwood stayed back. After Vivian and Ed left, John and Brenda had sex. He was 17 at the time. John declined to be interviewed for the podcast, but he told me in an interview for my book that the sex was consensual, and it wasn't the first time. Afterwards, he said Brenda was worried that she would be late meeting her parents at a granny's house and took off up to West Side Road. John says they yelled after her that she was going the wrong way, but Brenda didn't listen to them. John told me that about five minutes later, they heard a car stopping and some voices, but it was too far away to make out what was being said or who was saying it. About half an hour later, they met up with Brenda's uncle, Ron, who told them that he was looking for his niece. John said that she was coming down the road behind them. Shortly after that, police showed up at the Carson home, told them that Brenda was missing, and demanded to know what they did with her. According to John, an RCMP officer took him to the Invermere detachment and put him in a cell. They kept John in jail all week, taking him out each day to join the searches. He says he was questioned for hours on end, woken in the night by RCMP officers who screamed at him, Where's Brenda? Where's Brenda? The RCMP told John to leave Wilma for his own good. He went to live with his grandparents on their farm in Wycliffe, eventually getting a job at a sawmill in Golden. John married a girl from the Columbia Valley in 1963, and they still live in British Columbia. Alwood also left Wilma when he turned 18. He took a welding course and moved to Victoria, where he worked at the Department of National Defence in Esquimalt for the next 30 years. John says that over the years, he and Alwood have tried to find ways to solve the case, including hiring private investigators and excavating land where they believed Brenda might be buried. On the day that she disappeared, Brenda's oldest sister, Audrey, was at home in Dry Gulch, babysitting her younger siblings, Dorian and Albert, while her parents went to collect Brenda. Sometime later, her uncle picked them up and brought them to their grandmothers at Wilma. 
At one point, says Audrey, the townspeople helped raise the money to pay for a psychic who had once worked for Scotland Yard. The psychic told them that Brenda had suffered a traumatic experience that caused her to lose her memory, and she didn't know who she was. He told them that he couldn't say for sure what had happened to her, but it had something to do with water. This is Audrey. You're her older sister, weren't you? Yes, I was 14 at the time. What do you remember about Brenda? What can you tell me about her? She was the third child, and then there was seven years. My mother had two more children, so she was kind of a baby for seven years. She was very, very shy, very withdrawn. We called her the wallflower because she did, if anybody come to the house. Anyway, that was her personality. So she was a very timid child and didn't ever want to leave mom and dad and leave the home. The week she went missing, my grandmother, my mom's mother, she had always had all of us grandchildren sleep over with her. And Brenda was the only one that would never stay with her because she was too scared. And finally, Granny talked to her and said, Come on, Brenda, you're the only grandchild that I haven't had a sleepover with, and talked her into staying. And that's the weekend she disappeared. So why, if she was so scared about staying over, would your grandmother have let her go to this kid's house? Wilmer was where my mom grew up, and everybody knew everybody there. It was Connie that came down and asked my grandmother if Brenda could go on the picnic. Vivian Barrett's younger sister. Connie was the same age as Brenda. They knew each other because we'd lived in Wilmer and we were neighbours. And she'd gone to school with her. When did you find out that Brenda was missing? The first I'd heard was at about 3 o'clock Sunday afternoon, the day she was missing. She was supposed to be back at her grandmother's at 3 o'clock, is that right? Right. But when she didn't show up at 3 o'clock, my grandmother sent my uncle Ronnie to go look for her. And when he got up there, he said the two boys were there. Elwood and John, and they said they were looking for Brenda because she'd ran away and they couldn't catch her. That was their story. What do you think happened to her, Audrey? I think that the boys raped her in that barn that they were in, the barn that was just a little ways from the lake. And I think because Brenda was such a timid, shy person, I think she tried to fight them. And an accident happened. I think she was injured very badly, maybe died. I'm thinking she died. And I think John and Ed's stepfather took her out of town and got rid of her body. One thing, you know, my mother did, she kept the candle in the window all those years to show Brenda the way home. And it's so sad that, you know, she never found out either before she died to get closure of some kind. I also spoke with Verna and other of Brenda's older sisters in June 2019. On the weekend that Brenda disappeared, Verna had spent the weekend at a girlfriend's place and didn't find out until her parents picked her up on the Sunday night that Brenda went missing. Verna went out on the search the next day. She believes that Brenda never went on the hike to Enid Lake 
but died at the Barrett's house the night before. She tells me that nothing of Brenda's was ever found, not a footprint, not a piece of clothing, not even a hair from her long red hair. It's a small town, and Verna has known the Barretts and the Godlians all her life. John and Ed moved to Wilma later, but they all went to the same school. At one time, Verna and her husband lived next door to Ed Carson and his wife, and they'd often socialise. Brenda's father, Ingvar Byman, did carpentry work for Alwood's mother, Thelma. Children were babysat by different members of both families. Verna's mother, Hilda Byman, was born and raised in Wilma and was in the same class as Ina Barrett, Vivian Connie's mother. Although newspaper reports said that she was never questioned, Vivian Barrett was put in the back of a police car and questioned without her parents' knowledge on the same day that Brenda went missing. The 15-year-old was deeply traumatised by the intense scrutiny and with no counselling available to her, she was sent to live with her aunt in Calgary. Vivian married a man from Wilma in 1963 and had three children. The family left the Columbia Valley in 71. Vivian's daughter told me that her mother was committed to a psychiatric ward in 1994. During that stay, Vivian underwent hypnosis to see if she had repressed memories of the day of Brenda's disappearance, but she couldn't tell them anything more. Brenda's tragic disappearance and the speculation that Vivian somehow had a role in that haunted her until her death in 2022. There are four theories behind Brenda's disappearance. The first is that she died from exposure or was eaten by a grizzly or a cougar. Brenda's three sisters and brother and their families are convinced that the friend she was with that day killed her either accidentally or intentionally and their parents hid the body. Those friends who were last seen with her and their families believe that Brenda's father, Ingvar, went looking for her and killed her in a fit of rage, then buried her body in a well on his property. The fourth possibility is that Brenda was picked up in a vehicle by someone she knew, or less likely by a stranger. It would explain why not a single trace of her, not a hair or a thread of clothing, has ever been found. The RCMP must also have thought it possible, as newspaper reports in May 1961 ran with the headline, Car Sort in Missing Girl Case. The text read, RCMP are asking the driver of a light blue sedan or station wagon with a white top to report to the nearest detachment. The car was seen on a side road between Whitecliffe and Marysville, small centres near Kimberley, Monday afternoon. In the car were a man driver and a young girl passenger. I couldn't find any further mentions of this car. Either it was a red herring or perhaps police were too focused on trying to convict John Carson for her disappearance and murder. Newspaper reports at the time said that a police dog was brought in to track Brenda's scent and it stopped at the point where a vehicle would have picked her up. While this was an interesting detail, it was impossible to determine whether she'd been taken by car or if a scent had been wiped out by the hundreds of searchers who had already stomped or ridden through the area. I'm delighted to let you know that Erin Haken, an accomplished fine jeweller and custom goldsmith, has opened a studio in Vancouver. 
While Erin throws her heart and soul into all her creations, what she most loves to do is work closely with you to develop a treat-yourself piece. Erin will work with you to source the perfect stone, choose your favourite metal, produce drawings of your uniquely inspired design, and then create a ring that is truly individual to you. Go to erinhaken.com, that's E-R-I-N-H-A-K-I-N.com, and receive 15% off your order when you use the code COLDCASE. As the next couple of decades wore on, the Byman family put a notice in the local paper every Mother's Day May weekend. But otherwise, there was no more police activity or newspaper coverage. The Bymans, Barretts, Carstens and Godlians managed to coexist uneasily in the small town of Wilma. In July 1982, a year after Ingvar Byman died from lung cancer at age 59, another rumour started to circulate around the Columbia Valley. The townspeople speculated that a woman named Carol Edwards, who had moved to Radium from Golden three years before and hung around with Brenda's older sister, Audrey, was really the now 33-year-old Brenda Byman. Carol told a local reporter that people would see her in the street and say, Hello, Brenda. At the time, she said she'd been unaware of Brenda's story and just said, Hello, back, thinking they were mistaking her for someone else. She told a reporter, it's not true and it's unnerving. The newspaper told people to check with the Radium RCMP, who would verify that Carol was in fact Carol. In the early 1990s, polygraph lie detector tests were administered to John Carson and Alward Godlin in Victoria, Ed Carson in Cranbrook and Vivian Barrett in Edmonton. This is Elwood's younger brother, Russ Godlian. Except for uh, Ed and Vivian, all uh, the main players moved away from this valley eventually. Mm. They were uh, polygraphed, though. This would be going back 20-odd years. Oh, gosh, yes. So Elwood was living in Victoria, and he was contacted by the RCMP that they were opening it up as a cold case and they would like him to submit to a polygraph. He talked to me about that, too. He says, hey, I got nothing to hide. I've been totally investigated at the time. I'll go do a polygraph, you know, not a problem. So he did. Now, that was in Victoria. Elwood Godlian, John and Ed Carson, and Vivian Barrett all passed the polygraph lie detector tests and were told by the RCMP that they were no longer suspects in Brenda's disappearance. Then in 2001, on the 40th anniversary of her disappearance, Brenda's case hit the media again after a man came forward and said that when he was a child in the mid-1970s, he and two of his friends were playing in the woods in the Invermere area, about five kilometres from where Brenda had gone missing they came across what looked like a disturbed grave. They grabbed some sticks and started to dig and uncovered skeleton remains of what they thought was a body. Because they were staying with one of the boy's grandmothers and had promised not to wander off, 
they supposedly made a secret pact never to reveal this secret. Since most people wouldn't be able to tell human bones from animal bones, it's surprising that this tip got so much attention, let alone coverage in major national newspapers. But it did. Cranbrook RCMP Constable Dave Dubnik said, At present, this is the most important tip that we have. Dubnik, the officer in charge of the cold case, also told a reporter, I now believe that she was murdered. And my feeling is someone out there knows what happened to her. Not surprisingly, the man who came forward could remember only the general vicinity of where he saw the remains, and the bones were never found. Corporal Brent Ayres started with the Invermere Detachment in 2005. Seven years later, he came across Brenda's name. When he checked the file, he saw that she was still missing and he decided to reinvestigate. Unfortunately for Ayres, the files had been shuffled from detachment to detachment, and there wasn't much left. At the time, Ayres gave an interview to an online news source called Eno, something he now freely admits he shouldn't have done before investigating both sides of the story. While various newspaper articles over the years have ripped open old wounds, the Carsons, the Barretts and the Godlians have stayed silent, hoping that Brenda's disappearance would somehow be solved so that they could clear their names. John Carson says he was told in 1991 that the polygraph lie detector test he had taken had cleared his name and he was particularly upset when Ayres was quoted in the 2012 article. He said, All three men were polygraphed 30 years later, and they did pass it. But after 30 years, it's hard to say how accurate it is. I mean, that's 30 years of preparation for such a thing. Russ Godlian says that the article was unfair and one-sided. He felt that Brent Ayres, who happens to be Russ's next-door neighbour, was really biased. Though Russ was only five in 1961, he still lives in Wilma and he's grown up with the stories, the anger and the finger-pointing for the last 60-plus years. His own father, Bert Godlian, had grown up together with Inver Byman in the same Saskatchewan town before moving to the Columbia Valley. And until Brenda's disappearance, they had remained close friends. In 1961, Bert had been dying from cancer. Russ says he clearly remembers the stress that this incident added to the grief his mother and five siblings were experiencing. Furious about the Eno article, Russ wrote a letter to the editor, which he says they refused to print. Instead, it was published in the Invermere Valley Echo. This is Russ Godlian. I would like to convey my family's side of that story. You still live in the area, do you? Oh, I do, yeah. Right. Same town. How big yeah. is Wilma? We've probably got about 100 residences. And back in 1961? In 61, it was probably 50. Oh, my God, is that all? So everyone knew everybody then? Yes, yeah, for sure, yeah. You probably know where the saying wrong side of the tracks comes from. Yep. We were always looked down upon, I suppose, living in Wilma. We had our own school. One room 
classroom mm. was sixth grade. And a lot of the Wilmer parents were blue-collar. It mm-hmm. was a working community. When did so your brother pass away? He passed away, I think it was 205. The thing that I guess bothers me the most is my brother was 13, and he wasn't the kind of person that is going to cover for the older ones for all those years, especially after what he'd been through. And I guess that was one of the things that bothered me most about Stephanie Stevens' article, is that Harris had stated, the family had stated, uh, my brother was the only one to show remorse. But you don't show remorse unless you're guilty, right? And I know how my brother was tortured inside, but from what he was put through, he would have confessed 100%. A big part of the investigation and the interrogation at the time was conducted by a game warden. You call them conservation officers now. He was a lead on a lot of this. And now my brother told me that. They would split them up and they had different sections of search parties. So one of the main players would go with this group. The other one would go with the other group. And my brother was like thrown to the ground in front of a gopher hole and said, okay, is this where you buried her? We want to know. There was only one side of this that was investigated. Mm -hmm. They basically had John specifically nailed as guilty, and the whole investigation seemed to center around proving him guilty, not solving a disappearance or quite possibly a murder. Nowadays, one of the first places they look is immediate family, and I don't think that was done in any way. Six years went by, and in another attempt to put to bed the rumours that they'd been involved in Brenda's disappearance, the Carsons, the Barretts and Russ Godlian demanded a meeting in 2018 with Brent Ayres at the Invermere RCMP detachment. Attending the meeting with Ayres were Vivian and Connie Barrett, Vivian's daughter, John Carson and his wife, Ed Carson and Russ Godlian. Brent Ayres still lived in Wilmer, but had retired from the RCMP when I interviewed him for my book in 2022. He told me that he was working on limited information as the files pertaining to Brenda's disappearance were with another detachment. I suspect that they were thrown out decades ago. This is a clip from the interview that I did with Ayres. This is just such an odd case, and... You know, I've never seen anything that's divided a town so clearly as this one and for so yeah, long. I, naively, that's what I found out. I didn't know going in how divided it was until I reopened the case. But yeah, it did divide the town. I've had both sides upset at me. I'm more neutral now just because if the boys were innocent, which I I'm starting to feel my gut tells me they were. They've gone through a long, long road. The one brother stayed, but the older one left. You know, would have been a tough go for them. As a police officer, you need to be fair for everyone. The theory that she was missing and died of exposure or something is still quite possible then. I'd say that's probably where I'm leaning more to now than I was when I first got everything. Yeah, I just don't see how teenagers could get rid of a body with no trace even with help from parents. I just don't see that. I agree. I think there would have been more red flags. You know, is it possible that 
she succumbed to elements for sure. To me, that's a more plausible thing that occurred. But, yeah, you'd think you would have found something, wouldn't you? Some trace. Well, yes and no. With the 30 plus years I had, there was other files I've been involved with where you, you didn't find things from missing people. You know, there are bears, there's predators, it's early spring, animals are coming out, doesn't take much potentially if she'd succumb due to exposure or something and then uh, unfortunately if a bear comes out in early May, it wouldn't take much to take care of any remains. Eh? We've had people gone missing and we've never seen a trace from them and then there's other people where you'll catch a glimpse of something and you've got something to work with. There's a missing girl out there and it would be nice someday to find what happened. It's still an open file, and it's, uh, you know, if something was to come in, uh, the RCMP would still investigate it as such. I think it's a tragedy all around, and it would be nice to find closure. It's now been over 60 years, and the investigation has led nowhere. Brenda's file still reads, Missing, Believed, Dead. And of the four other teens who hiked to Enid Lake that Sunday, all but John Carson are dead. In 2018, when Ed Carson was still alive, the group tried to prove their theory that Inver Byman killed his daughter and buried her body in a well. The current owner of the Byman property agreed to the excavation of a cistern on her land, and John hired a machine to dig it up. The group found part of a pair of old blue jeans buried in the dirt, and they called Ayres to pick them up. Ayres said, He took the material to the RCMP detachment, but doesn't know if it was ever tested. I'm not sure what good that would have done anyway, even if they'd found Brenda's blood and Inver's DNA. What would that have proven? But not finding Brenda's remains that day hasn't put the theory to rest for her old friends. They just believe that they were searching in the wrong spot. They maintain that there's a well that was filled in at the time of Brenda's disappearance. They just don't know where it is. The next step, they say, is to obtain ground-penetrating radar and search the whole property. More than 60 years has passed, memories fade and people die. The Bymans, Carsons, Godleans and Barretts have grandchildren now. And their children and grandchildren will believe what they believe. While John Carson admits to having consensual sex with Brenda, the Bymans call it rape. Today, that would have been a criminal offence, because legally a 12-year-old is incapable of giving consent. It's also impossible to know Brenda's state of mind after being used by an older boy in this way, or how she reacted. Perhaps she fled deep into the bush and got lost. I don't believe that the teens were involved in Brenda's disappearance, because if John Carson was involved, then so was 13-year-old Alward Godlian. How would they have had time to kill her and hide her body so well that no trace was ever found? The searches went out that same night, and John was in jail. If the parents had somehow helped to cover it up and get rid of Brenda's body, how could all of those teens, including 11-year-old Connie Barrett, have stayed quiet for all of those years and continued to live in the area under that kind of scrutiny. And that's really the tragedy, over six decades on, how the disappearance of a little girl continues to divide a town. 
If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is based on a chapter in my book, Cold Case BC. If you have any information on Brenda Byman's disappearance, please contact the Columbia Valley RCMP at 250-342-9292 or if you'd rather stay anonymous, call Crime Stoppers 1-800-222-8477 or go onto the website solvecrime.ca. If you'd like more information on this or other cases, please go to my website evelazarus.com or join us on the Facebook group page Cold Case Canada. I'm Eve Lazarus and I'm a reporter and an author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. I host and produce Blood, Sweat and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance. Vance wasn't a police officer, as his title suggests. He was the first forensic scientist to work for a police department in Canada and certainly the first to carry a badge and a gun. Vance was so good that he was known as the Sherlock Holmes of Canada and his forensic skills were so advanced that in 1934 there were seven attempts on his life by criminals afraid to go up against him in court. Each episode follows a different major crime that Vance helped to solve. You can find Blood, Sweat and Fear on Apple, Podbean or your favourite podcatcher. Podcatcher.